Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And I'm happy to be joining you from the best coast, which is the east coast, or the west coast of Lake Michigan in Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> um, I'm staying I'm staying at the, at the uh, home of Jesuitical listener, Patreon supporter, and college roommate of mine, uh, Joe, it, it, which has been great for me because as listeners... Well, no, I went to school in Chicago. I love Loyola. And I'm now I'm here for three weddings in a row. So Joe's graciously yeah. decided to host me. So this is not <laughs> what I had in mind when I said we're taking the show on the road, but it'll do. Yeah. Welcome to your late 20s. Thank you. Got those wedding, those wedding marathons. Wedding season. I know I've tr- tried to say that I'm still in my mid-20s, but I think that yeah. game is over. What are you, How are you doing, Ashley? Are you doing all right? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We've had some fantastic summer thunderstorms over the past couple of days, which I just love. Like- like really good thunder and lightning and rain that just breaks that humid summer air. So I've I've been very pleased with that. Though and I did have to break out the air conditioning. So if you hear a hum in the background. <laughs> well, I appreciate you making time to record this today because I know you are trying to to get out of here to go hang out with my sister. It's On summertime. Coney Island, yeah. yes. <laughs> so my desolation for the week is that my sister has overtaken me in my social in the social rankings of Davis's. Yeah. So uh, appreciate it. <laughs> All right. uh, Who are we talking to this week? We are very excited to be talking to Gloria Purvis. Gloria recently joined the America Media podcast family with the Gloria Purvis podcast, which debuted a few weeks ago. Um, we, We dropped that first episode in the Jesuitical feed, so hopefully you've had a chance to listen to it already. But we we needed to bring her on our show because she is, if you've listened, you know she has such great passion for the church, but is not afraid to be critical and ask hard questions of Catholics and what they're doing to fight for justice in the church and in the wider society. Yeah. And we had a lot of fun talking to Gloria. We also, uh, there was some, uh, some, some stuff that happened with her former radio show that we definitely get into with Gloria. So you're definitely going to stick around for that whole conversation. But Gloria was gracious enough to recommend a drink for us this week. Yes, we are drinking Uncle Nearest bourbon, which has a great story behind it that we will we'll let Gloria tell you in the interview. So stick around for that. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So our first story is about the really tragic, horrible news coming out of Canada, where the end of last month, the remains of 215 uh, First Nations indigenous children were found on the grounds of the Catholic run to Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia. Right. So Catholic leaders in Canada have expressed their horror and sadness at this news. A quote from Archbishop Michael Miller of Vancouver, uh, his statement, he said, quote, The pain that such news causes reminds us of our ongoing need to bring light to every tragic situation that occurred in residential schools run by the church. The passage of time does not erase the suffering that touches the indigenous communities affected, and we pledge to do whatever we can to heal that suffering. Yeah, and this is such an awful story that we, we'll we'll be honest, we did not know a lot about background-wise. And so we wanted to take the time and try and get into that and explain as much context as possible because we felt it was really important to both educate ourselves and also share this with with you all. So to start on that background, 
Around 150,000 Indigenous children attended residential schools in Canada starting in the 1880s. And most of these schools were operated by churches. And so the Catholic Church operated a good number of them. Not all of them, but a good number. And there, children were often forced to attend these schools far from their communities in order to be assimilated into Western culture. And there, they were prohibited from using native languages and cultural practice, and disease and abuse were rampant. So indigenous survivors of these schools and their and their families have long spoken out about the abuses that they or their their family members suffered and and about the disappearances of of children from these schools. So finally from 2008 to 2015 there was a truth and reconciliation commission that documented the history at these residential schools and concluded that the system amounted to a form of cultural genocide. Yeah. And so the Takambu school is one of the largest of the roughly 130 schools in the system that were operated by the church until 1969. And so, which I, that I did not realize how close this history was. Um, that's when the federal government took over the residential school system, which did not close officially until 1996. And so at this school where the remains of 215 children were found, uh, the youngest of which, who was just three years old, they they were able to discover this after 20 years of kind of looking into it using ground-penetrating radar. So all of these children were buried decades ago, and a lot is unknown about them. You know, they clearly died at the school. We don't know if the school notified their families. We don't know if their deaths were documented in any way. So there are still a lot of unanswered questions. And so the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has asked for a formal apology from Pope Francis for the church's involvement in the residential school system. The the Canadian government has apologized, and they're asking the church to also. And on Sunday, Pope Francis expressed his pain at the news of the discovery of 215 children's Bodies, but he did stop short of an apology. He said that the discovery is a reminder that we must move away from the mindset of colonialism and from the colonializing ideologies that exist today. And sources in Rome told our Vatican correspondent Jerry O'Connell that the Pope did meet uh, with the Canadian bishops at the Vatican back in 2017. And they discussed this issue, and Pope Francis raised the idea of visiting Canada to ask for pardon from Indigenous people on, on, on behalf of the Church. But apparently there was no consensus among the Canadian bishops when, when they had that talk. So the prospect of a trip remains up in the air. And so what's next for the Kamloops School in this story? The Kamloops First Nation community will be working with a coroner to identify the remains, and they'll be reaching out to other communities whose children may have attended the school and protecting the burial site and seeking records of their deaths. Yeah, so this is this is a painful part of the church's history, not just in Canada, but in the United States and throughout throughout the world. Um, and I don't know, it's I feel like you, you've talked about this before. When when we went to Australia, it seemed like there was more awareness and more recognition of this part of the church's or, you know, Australia's history and the church's involvement in that. Like you can you were often seeing markers of, you know, who this land used to belong to. It doesn't seem like the church here or the country, the United States, has has gotten to that that far in their reckoning. Yeah, I, I would say like <laughs> I mean, there are a number of atrocities that the country is yet to even reckon with, and this this is one of them. Um, you know, but watching it just to, from our from our neighbors to the north, there's definitely something that we as an American church need to pay attention to and learn from because this is this is a part of our history. It's a part of the church's history. It's part of the Jesuits' history, and so there's a lot that still needs to be done. And part of that, I think, people, I think. The Canadian government is rightly, and the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is right to ask for an apology. And I know the church is really slow to do that sometimes. So I was, I'll just say I was disappointed that the story has become the church is sad but not sorry, um, which is what a lot of the headlines were. Speaking of apologies, what's our next story, Ashley? So the German Cardinal Reinhard Marx surprised many at the Vatican and in Germany when he announced that he has requested that Pope Francis accept his retirement as the Archbishop of Munich and Freising in response to the sexual abuse crisis in Germany. Now, what's notable here is that Cardinal Marx doesn't have any allegations of sexual abuse or cover-up that are currently leveled against him. In fact, he's actually been a major player in some of the church's reforms to help stop and atone for the crisis of sex abuse. So the question is, why is he asking to resign even when today there are 
so many archbishops and bishops who, even when there's evidence against them, refuse to resign. I'll let Cardinal Marx explain his decision in his own words. He said, quote, with my resignation, I would like to make clear that I am willing to personally bear responsibility, not only for any mistakes I might have made, but for the church as an institution, which I have helped to shape and mold over the past decades. And he went on saying, quote, this decision is not easy for me. I like being a priest and bishop and hope that I can continue to work for the church in the future. My service for the church and people does not end. However, to support a new beginning, which is necessary, I would like to bear my share in the responsibility for past events. I believe that the, quote, dead end that we're facing at the moment can become a turning point. This is my paschal hope, and I will continue praying and working for this to happen. Ashley, I'm wondering, what did you think when this, it surprised a lot of people and it's led to a lot of takes. What what, what did you think when you saw this? Yeah, I immediately felt the tension of it. You know, I can see how this could be a an important symbolic gesture, especially for, for victims who feel like their voices have been not, they haven't been heard and that the, the hierarchy of the church has not taken responsibility. And I don't say symbolic gesture implying that it's empty or meaningless, but it, it is, that's what it is. But part of me is, you know, as a kind of, I don't know, someone who's an institutionalist, I often feel like the best way to work for change is from the inside. And so part of taking responsibility as as a bishop like Cardinal Marx is, you know, staying in that position and working for change because someone's going to replace him. And what if that person is not as passionate about apologizing for the church's failure with regard to sexual abuse? I, I know what you mean, because there is like this just sense it's like, okay, like this is really admirable, but, but also we're losing one of the good guys <laughs> um, that's there. And nevertheless, I reflecting back on this last story where, you know, we're hesitant to apologize for things that are pretty clearly like sinful and things that we have done wrong. And you would hope that, you know, this is true of the larger society. We are generally hesitant to just apologize, it, it, especially now. It, it, it gives off the sense that you're willing to like take on full legal and moral responsibility for any of the ramifications of your actions. And nevertheless, you would think that the church's bar for penance and asking for forgiveness would be much lower than the rest of societies. And this example from Cardinal Marx strikes me as much more so akin to to Christian witness, right? Where, you know, I am personally wanting to bear responsibility for something, for this institution that he is a part of and molded and rose through the ranks of. So he's not like totally without blame, which he recognizes. And to be able to see that head on and recognize the personal and the structural strikes me as something much more like what Jesus would do in this situation, right? Who is the, who is the ultimate like blameless victim. And so that's where the story ends for now is that we're, we're sort of waiting to see what Pope Francis decides, but we will be watching the story from Germany and we will report on any updates as they come. And now stick around for our conversation with Gloria Purvis. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Gloria Purvis. Gloria is the host of the Gloria Purvis podcast from America Media. Welcome to Jesuitical, Gloria. Thank you so much, guys. I'm so happy and excited to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, we had to. You're you're now a member of the of the American <laughs> Media Podcast family, and it, it only felt right to welcome you on for a drink. Why? Um, speaking you. of drinks, uh, thank you. Could you please give our listeners the uh, the backstory to what we're drinking right now? Oh yeah, and it's a good one. So <laughs> most people have probably heard of Jack Daniels, right? He, um, mm-hmm. The distiller that does the whiskey out of Tennessee. Well, what people may not know is that there was an enslaved man later on freed named Uncle Nearest is what they called him. And he taught Jack Daniels how to make liquor, how to do this. And he was originally from West Africa. Um, his name was Nathan Green. And they, his like they called him Uncle Nearest. That was a term of endearment. So he taught uh, Jack Daniels how to distill alcohol. And apparently he used a technique that he learned in West Africa that they used to clean water by running the water through charcoal. 
you know? So he applied that to the distilling process and taught that to Jack Daniels. And apparently Uncle Nearest had been known to the locals in Lynchburg, Tennessee. He was no secret. A woman named Fawn Weaver, who was a tech entrepreneur and best-selling author, was on vacation and apparently had come across some information about Uncle Nearest, went down to Tennessee, did more research, actually found a picture of Uncle Nearest with Jack Daniels, with the distilling team. She's like, you know what? This is just, I've got to, you know, create this whiskey using his recipes in his name. And so that is how Uncle Nearest whiskey came to be. Thanks to Fawn Weaver reading about Uncle Nearest and his influence on Jack Daniels. And she said, I got to do this. And then the Jack Daniels company got excited, I guess, and wanted to try to jump in there in some kind of way. And so voila, we all have Uncle Nearest whiskey. Amazing. You know, I just saw too that Fawn Weaver is putting up like something like fifty million dollars to help other uh, minority-owned distillers. Yes, which is pretty is. pretty cool. So yeah, she was paid. Uh, if you all didn't understand that, she was rich. Yeah, she was actually rich before she started. That's how somebody could just move to Tennessee and, and do this full time and and whatnot. But I think it's really great that um, she's decided that she wants to support other distillers. You know, black distillers getting in the business. And there's a Black Bourbon Society that's very supportive of Uncle Nearest. So it's all good. And I say drink to it. And our listeners should try it out. It's good stuff. Well, as a fan of Jack Daniels, I'm excited to go back to the source. So cheers. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. And so... (laughs) So, Gloria, you are now a podcast host with America Media. Um, But... Before that, you were a radio host with EWTN, uh, hosting the Morning Glory Glory radio yep. show for years. And and that show was canceled at the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. And from outlookers, people observing it, it seemed like that the cancellation of the show was in some way connected to, to the ways you'd been talking about racism in the months after the murder of George Floyd. So is, is that true? Would you say that your show was canceled because of how you talked about racism? Well, I will just tell you what transpired and you all can draw your own conclusions. So I was talking about uh, racism, police brutality, uh, actually from Ahmaud Arbery's murder in Georgia, Breonna Taylor, and then George Floyd just sort of kicked it off. I received tremendous amounts of hate mail um, where people who identified themselves as Catholic wrote to, wrote into me and said the most terrible things. But I thought, okay, Lord, these people actually are the ones that actually need to hear this and be encouraged to understand that their faith applies, the dignity of the human person applies to George Floyd as well. And we would have weekly meetings and it was always the show's great, show's awesome, all these things. And then, I mean, weekly meetings throughout the year, everything's good. And then that last week of 2020, we finished the show and then the head of radio, Jack Williams, came on and said, you know, annually we review the sh- we review shows and we decided not to renew Morning Glory. It was a stunner because we'd been meeting every week. And I said, why? Well, tell us why. And he said, we just do an annual review and we decided not to renew Morning Glory. And that was it. That was all the explanation. So that's it. That's all I can I can only tell you exactly what happened, and that's exactly what happened. People can draw their own conclusions. But it was a shock because we met weekly and were never, it was never any indication that there was anything but good stuff going on with the show. Now, I'm wondering how, you you mentioned you got a tremendous amount of hate mail for that. Yeah. Were there any, would you say, fruitful or productive conversations around anything that was happening? You mean with the people who sent in hate mail? Oh, no, even your your co-hosts. Because um, I know well, it's yeah, hard I to mean, talk back to crazy people who are saying oh, yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we had a difference of opinion on, on, on matters. Um, and I thought it was helpful to have that discussion on air because I would imagine there are plenty of people listening that have different opinions and different perspectives. And as an African-American woman that has members of her family in law enforcement, um, I had already written previously when Philando Castile was murdered about his death and the role of the Catholic Church. And I thought Catholic people in police brutality, that we needed to raise our voices and talk about that people that interact with the criminal justice system are made in the image and likeness of God as well. They're innocent until proven guilty. Law enforcement has a duty to preserve the people's lives who come in contact with them. 
and things like that. And I just wasn't for this kind of simplistic, ahistorical, in my opinion, idea that policing was perfect. I mean, I knew the history of policing. I knew, and I know Black people had been talking about police brutality for a better part of a century. And it was just so new to other people that they, I guess, had never considered that from centuries of slavery, neo-slavery, and Jim Crow, and the role policing had played in all of these um, methods of controlling the black community that, you know, it would also could possibly infect police culture vis-a-vis black people. And so to have that broader conversation, um, I thought would be good listening, you know, for our listeners. And I also thought we're supposed to be talking about the truth. I'm not going to just go along to get along. I'm going to be honest. And so, yeah, I was willing to do that. And I'm sure it made people uncomfortable, but I was not disrespectful. I was willing to listen to everyone's opinions and I also would freely share mine. And being the only woman, I think, was pretty interesting too. I think that was another thing that was hard for people. I was the only woman. The other two guys were clergy, either a deacon or and a priest. And so to hear a woman have an opinion different than a deacon and the priest and be comfortable in that and not be cowed by that and not, you know, I, I, I can be influenced by reason, you know, make rational arguments, but there was nothing I felt that persuaded me enough to change what I was thinking or what my approach was. And that also was very, very hard for some people to swallow that I just didn't do whatever the priest and the deacon said. I was like, we're a church of reason. God gave us brains for for that purpose. And just because they're a deacon or a priest doesn't mean that their opinion on this matter should override mine. No, absolutely. And you mentioned that like these are things that you already already know, you're aware of, right? Like you know the history of policing. Yeah. Did you ever at any point yeah. feel like like why do I or, or this push pull, like why why do I have to teach this to this audience that's sending me in these hmm. hateful things. Um, <laughs> well, like, some of it was also teaching it to my co-host, sure. <laughs> you know, to the guys that were on it with me. They just didn't know. It's so, and, and also in trying to have these conversations, I'm always okay with people asking me, well, why? I have a reason. And so I would explain because I wanted them to understand where I was coming from, not just the listeners, but also my co-hosts to understand and the godly council that that's what we call the priest to understand where I was coming from because you know so much of the conversation could have gotten lost in this left right binary that's thrown on the church and I'm like wait a minute we're all catholic and if we believe in the dignity of the human person that has got to center in here and if we understand that I mean I even pointed them to go to the National Law Enforcement Museum website they talked about the history of early policing and slavery and clearly showed you know it was about social control using terror using beatings and that it was a civic duty to these patrollers to control the black community. And then they talked about after slavery, how that morphed in with these white terror organizations like the Klan and how these things affected early policing in the South post-slavery. And then if you do some other reading, I mean, to me, I was just like, just, you know, people just aren't exposed to these things. But I had been. And I also grew up in the South. So lived experience and family stories, (laughs) you know. And I think a lot of people in the United States have been trying to have those types of conversations over the past year. And I'm wondering if you guys, you know, you and your co-hosts ever like, you know, reached a place of, you know, true understanding and and if so, or even on like some partial points, like what did you find helped you to like actually engage in that kind of dialogue and really hear or, you know, have them be able to hear you? Well, that's up to them, right? As to how they respond to ideas that are different from them. I don't think they necessarily agreed and that's okay. You know, we don't have to agree, but they can choose how to respond to opinions that are different from theirs. You know, so I I don't know if I would consider it like what people might consider a place of understanding. They knew where I came from, what I was saying, I knew what they were saying, but it wasn't that we agreed on anything there. And I was okay with that. I think that can be something that's challenging for people is that sometimes, especially among Catholics, it's again, that whole 
role that being a cleric plays in a conversation with a lay person, not just a lay person, but a lay woman, you know, so people coming to terms with, and I'm no shrinking violet. That's the other thing too. I wasn't going to tamp down what I believed from my own experience, from the experience of my family and from reading the history and living in the South. Give me a break. So I, I knew these things and this was not something to come from, oh, you know, that I, you know, hate the police and all this kind of stuff. No, what I don't like is police brutality. And I'm not anti-police because I'm pointing out the police brutality is wrong. Just like I'm not anti-medicine if we point out that abortion is wrong. You know, some people say abortion is medicine. We would say it's an abuse of medicine. Some people, you know, so they couldn't make the distinctions that we can and should critique policing where it violates the dignity of the human person, where you're killing people, where you're brutalizing people. And to help people understand that that actually is an abuse of the public trust. We have entrusted police officers with legal authority to use it properly. And when they act like criminals, they have greatly violated the public trust. Because I did get a lot of emails where people say, why don't you just talk about black on black crime? All that kind of stuff. And I'm making that sound because it just, to me, just seemed like people were just being snarky and trying to deflect from the real issue. And I had to point out on air why I found the term black on black crime to be a problem. I was like, every community has crime, right? We don't call it white on white crime. Everybody watched what was going on in Northern Ireland and nobody called it white on white crime, right? You think crime doesn't happen in Appalachia or, or South Boston or even with whatever that dude is um, who just died. The idea that people wanted to racialize crime as if there was something unique to the Black person and made them extra special criminals. So that was, uh, to me, a problem to characterize crime, which every community experiences is specifically racial, number one. And number two, to equate criminals committing crime being the same as the police. If we had no right to demand that the police use their authority appropriately in our communities. You know, I just thought we have rights too. We pay taxes too. We are citizens too. They're supposed to protect and serve us as well. And you're right that, you know, we are going to say that the police are violating the public trust by brutalizing our community. And to try to tell me I need to go and work on crime in my community first is just, you know, it's, it's someone that's not serious about engaging in police brutality. I mean, agents of the state brutalizing and killing my community is something I shouldn't be talking about because we got criminals in our community. Well, then, heck, none of us can talk about anything because everybody has criminals in their community. So to be able to answer those kind of responses that people would make, just to me, just the cruel, cruel deflections because people simply didn't want to deal with the reality of police brutality. And, you know, you made this point in a number of places, but that the people you're trying to talk to are your fellow Catholics yes, and that you should have a shared framework or a shared understanding about the dignity of the human person. And yet people who you might have had previous, like, I don't know, allyship with, mm. um, particularly in your pro-life work, oh, yeah. um, were unable to, as you say, engage seriously with, with the topic of race. Oh, Zach, you're so kind. I would say even... More pointedly, it wasn't they were unable to, they worked against that. Okay, they worked against those things. So, I mean, the George Floyd experience for me really was sobering because it was like I was married to a toxic abuser and didn't know it until that time. And I woke up and was like, hold up now. We took the same vows. What's up here? And then that's when you start to realize the culture of life, building a cultural life and human dignity meant something completely different to a whole swath of folks that before just loved you. When you talked about, you know, protecting and defending life in the womb and protecting the mother, oh, they loved you then. But then when you also were as equally animated about protecting the life of the human person outside the womb and encounters with policing, then it was a, wait a minute now. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. I was like, wait a minute. Building a culture of life and a civilization of love necessarily includes 
people outside the womb. It necessarily includes the people who you don't like. It necessarily includes the people that you think might might be criminal, might be drug addict, might be engaged in illegal activities, might be people that you, you know, the society might say is less than. I said, it's precisely those people that we need to speak up for. It's precisely those people who we need to point out that they are made in the image and likeness of God and their lives are worthy of dignity and respect and protection. If we fail to do that, we failed Jesus Christ. To me, I was like, shut up. You can't even talk about defending life in the womb if you are preaching the anti-gospel about George Floyd's life. And I saw the anti-gospel being preached by too many Catholics who proclaimed to be pro-life. But then when I looked at what they were saying, they, they just weren't, not in accord with what we believe about the human person as Catholics. And I was like, we got to call these people out on this because they are mired in darkness and lies. We need to be prophetic and speak the gospel like we would anywhere else. And that's what was sobering to me, is that people didn't want to hear that because it seemed to violate some political talking points. And I was like, let me make it clear to y'all. I'm not here to serve a political party or any political person. My allegiance is to Jesus Christ, and that's it. And I, I, you know, if I'm stepping on this party's toes or that, I don't care. I'm only caring about what Jesus Christ thinks. Yeah. And what I say, I believe. And if I say I love him and get up on here and two-time him for a political party, what kind of foolishness is that? You know? I was like, uh-uh. Mm-mm. You know, a lot of Catholics, you know, use this term consistent life ethic or seamless garment of life. And I don't know, from your experience with fellow Catholics, it seems like we might have different definitions of what that means. So what does it really mean? And what does it really mean to to live it out? Well, so if we say rightfully that we believe in the dignity of the human person from conception to natural death, that has consequences for how we behave and what we value and what we say and how we live our life. And if we could stand up with a straight face and defend the murder of George Floyd because he had a previous criminal background, then we're liars. Then no, it's not truly that we believe that every person is made in the image and likeness of God. We don't believe Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image. We don't believe that. We make it conditional. And that was the other thing that I found really disturbing, that the the same people who profess these pro-life values and would advocate for pro-life policies and try to engage with people that were pro-abortion, they were using the very same strategies that they condemned pro-abortion advocates for. They were doing the same tactics to dehumanize George Floyd as they would condemn pro-abortion people for dehumanizing the child in the womb. And I was like, you ain't no better. You're just, that's how I thought it was demonic. I was like, it's the same demon confusing people. And even if things are difficult, the answer isn't to jettison that person. The answer is to embrace them and to love them and to challenge ourselves. I mean, it it was hurtful. It was so personally hurtful just because I felt betrayed by these people. I felt used by these people who were so happy to talk about racism and abortion in Black communities that cared about Black people in the womb. but. Outside the womb, somebody like George Floyd, not so much. And that's and that is, I, I still am reeling from it, quite frankly. A year later, I'm still not healed from all that. I'm still not healed from what I witnessed and saw happen to George Floyd and the, res, the response from Catholics who normally say that they're pro-life. Just, it didn't translate here. You said you're still reeling from it, but this mm. is this is also something I, I I feel really deeply because I've seen in myself. You know, I was president of my pro life club in college, and then as I've gotten older, I'm still definitely pro life, but I don't exactly know how to square that with some of the people that I used to really look up to. Yeah. As you said, are 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 liars in a lot of ways about yeah. that, and it's really hard mm-hmm. to like want to even stand shoulder to shoulder with them. In, in yeah. certain things. And I, I personally not quite figured out what that means for me and my advocacy and how I talk about stuff. And I'm not sure if you've thought about that at all, about what oh, this yeah. means, specifically for like going back to any type of pro-life advocacy. So I have a little story to tell you well before George Floyd. Um, gosh, this had to be 15 years ago, maybe 20. I was 
on a mission to get a lot of black people to show up for the March for Life. And so I don't care where I was. If I saw a black person at mass, I was like on top of them afterwards, <laughs> inviting them to the March for Life. And I was really successful in getting a substantial turnout of black Catholics for the March for Life. And I remember we were standing out there outside of the mall in our little group, you know, we're chit-chatting, waiting for everything to get started. And this white man walks up to our group and starts finger wagging, telling us about Martin Luther King. If Martin Luther King was alive, he'd be here and blah, blah, blah. And I, at that moment, was like, he has now undone every bit of work that I have now done. Because instead of greeting us as fellow marchers, he came up and he was talking down to us, to somebody that had been dead before I was even born, that he couldn't relate to us except to tell us about Martin Luther King. And we will, you know, I was like, so what? I mean, we are here now. And when I turned around and looked at all these people, they looked at me like, honey, we ain't never coming back here again. Because they're like, we're not going to put up with this. We got enough in our lives to deal with than to come here at some March for Life and have white people haranguing us and talking down to us like we're their children. Uh, You know, we're clearly here because we made a choice to be here. We don't need somebody doing that. And it was super unwelcoming. And I said, you know, I will not inflict that on anyone else again. I I just couldn't do that. So I had already had my experiences in the movement and um, embracing myself for these things when I go to the March for Life. Now, I love Jeannie Mancini, love what the organization is doing, don't get me wrong, but some of the people in the crowd, you got to brace yourself for their need to try to lecture you as if somehow you need their approval to be there, as if somehow you didn't, through your own agency, decide to be there. And so it was just completely off-putting, you know, and unwelcoming. And so you have to, in a way, be able to steal yourself for those kinds of encounters. I can do it. I have been doing it. Not everybody's willing to. And also not everybody is going to respond so politely. He's lucky it was me in front of the group and not somebody else. That's all I'm going to say. He's lucky. So, I mean, so that's the reality of it. I'm just telling you that's the reality of being in the movement. I don't really like the question like, you know, why do you stay? Because like, you know, <laughs> where, you know, where else are you going to go? And it's your church and you know, mm-hmm. all the all the reasons. But how how do you stay? How do you stay without letting anger and hurt like consume you from these experiences? Oh, the the cross. Totally the cross. Okay. Totally the cross and prayer and you know, having an just I love the Lord. I believe what I profess. And I came to, you know, I had a mystical experience. I you normally don't talk all the time about these things, but I had a mystical experience at Mass that really opened my eyes to the dignity of the human person. And like it was a mini chastisement, a really, really, really small one. And you never want to have one, let me just tell you, even a really, really small one. But it it has done something to me. I'm changed. And I can't let that foolishness from other people make me abandon him. Christ carried a cross out of love for us, for me individually, for you individually, even knowing how messed up we are, right? And so I cannot, because I love him, walk away from him, even if other people are abusive to me because I want to serve him and they want to serve him too in their way, but in their way, somehow they have to still be abusive to me. I just can't, I can't leave him. (laughs) I just, I just can't. And I look at him more closely, you know, and I give it all to him. And I think he sustains me. I really do. I think he sustains me in that. It's really just my relationship with him and my firm belief in the truth and the realness of the sacraments and what they bring that I, I, I would die, I think. I just couldn't not, I can't, I can't even comprehend it. So even when I'm meeting and suffering these kinds of abuses, and a lot of which I won't even go into here because I don't want to frighten and scandalize the audience. But yeah, it just there's a lot of brokenness in the church, and a lot of I don't I hate to say it. I mean, a lot of racism has infected people in the church, and they would not even consider themselves to be racist, and they are. They have a coldness. They have an air of superiority when it comes to Black people. Like they have a right to tell us what we're, we are or are not supposed to do or think or believe, or even how we are to engage in justice movements. And the audacity, 
you know, to not understand we have agency. I mean, I had Catholics tell me that I need to be thankful that these 300,000 white men died in the civil war to free my people. And I had to correct them and say, hey, uh, let me help y'all understand something. Black people have been from the very beginning fighting for our own freedom from the moment that we were kidnapped and brought here, have been struggling for our own liberation. And I'm not going to lick somebody's boots that they're a couple centuries late and getting on board to fight for our liberation as well. And so I just was like, no way. And I was like, well, what kind of attitude is that to come from a Catholic? And I, I'm sad to say they got that because they were listening to another priest's homily. A priest that was, you know, given a homily on lynching in the Civil War and was dead wrong about history. And and was also really wrong in his theology. Um, and I won't say his name because sometimes when I, I, I don't do that because I feel like I'm calling up the devil when I do that. I'll just pray for this person. But but I saw the effects of his spiritual abuse on this these people and how they were interacting with me and their attitude about Black people in 2021, like in the last three weeks, you know. So I love the Lord. That's what keeps me. And we have a lot of work to do in the church. And we need to have these conversations for the mere reason that people are still in the grips of the demon of racism. And I want them to be free of it. Like I want myself to be free of sin too, you know? Well, you know, these conversations you're mentioning, you're doing a lot of them on your new podcast. I wonder if we could talk yeah. about that for a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, and I want people to know I'm a fun chick, okay? And I, I know I feel like I feel like we're bringing you real down. And like You're before not. we turn the mics on, we were cutting it up. Let me tell you, I promise. Well, <laughs> well, you know, and that's the thing. That's the other thing too. Um, people say, "Oh my gosh," and I was like, "Yo, I'm a happy, joyful person." I also just deal with the reality of the world, but I don't let that stuff crush me, crush my spirit. I come from a joyful people, actually, you know, despite a lot of the organized abuse legally, uh, also culturally in terms of society and all those kinds of things, we are people that persevere and going to do it and going to make it and going to thrive no matter what. I don't want people to think talking about these things has broken me. It hasn't. These, These are just true things that I think we need to be aware of and we need to talk about it and it hopefully gives context to people's movement for justice. It gives context to the righteous anger you may be seeing from some people in the Black community and also gives some context for what's going on in our church, in the body of Christ. You know, everyone wants to act like racism doesn't exist and I'm here to tell you, oh, it's thriving and it's in our church. <laughs> but on the podcast, I... I, I give my point of view on a few things and then we talk with the guest. But I'm I'm just as real as I am with you here. I'm as real there because I just, I don't have the time and or nor the talent to be two people. <laughs> so what you see and what you hear is what you get. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just like, a, yeah. you know, that's just how it's going to be. And we'll process things together, you know? I'll, I'll process stuff with uh, my listeners, with uh, my guests. And we've talked about you know, the anniversary of George Floyd. Um, and actually with this particular priest who ministers in a Black Catholic community, Father Eric Rutten, he's not Black, he's white. And uh, we talked about that, just real straight up, you know? And, uh, and then on our second one, we talked about actually with Father Bruce Wilkinson, who had an article in America Magazine where he talked about, I was kicked out of the seminary for being too Black. And we get into all the details that not in the article. So you'd have to listen to that episode too. So, yeah. The first two episodes have been so powerful. We're so happy to have it as a part of our media network. But you, you said something in the in the trailer to the show that, that really resonated with me. You said, you know, some people will assume you're liberal. Others will call you too conservative. And, and your response to them is that you're just Catholic. So I think, I don't know, a lot of people talk about Catholics being politically homeless in the United States. But I don't know. I feel like increasingly it fe- you, you feel kind of homeless within these groups that have infected the Catholic Church. So I, I very much resonate with this idea of just Catholic, and I'm wondering what, what it means to you. Oh, yeah. It means that you're going to be okay standing by yourself sometimes. You're going to be okay understanding that um, you might not be liked everywhere. You're going to be okay with having integrity. And sometimes having integrity and being faithful to Jesus means you're going to stand alone. You even might be vilified. You might be exiled, but that's okay. And you got to be okay with that. 
I also think it frees you to look at the issue from the lens of the faith rather than, oh, I got to have allegiance to this political candidate or this person. You aren't so invested in temporal power either. That's another thing that I think has really sickened me as I've looked at how people have dealt with politics. There has been a craving for temporal power. And I'm like, hold up. Do you believe that Jesus Christ created everything, that God created everything seen and unseen? Well, if he has that kind of power, why are you like so willing to sell out to get somebody you think will in the White House? Why are you so willing to sell out? Doesn't matter who these kings and presidents and leaders are. Jesus Christ is king. Everything is his. The question is, are we willing to serve him even under those circumstances where we may be fearful or uncomfortable because somebody with human temporal power disagrees with us? You know, we love these martyrs till we might have to be one. <laughs> and, and, and so I'm like, what kind of faith is that? That you only want to serve him when you're comfortable. And I think when you when you divest yourself of that kind of liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat stuff, and you're like, I'm just Catholic, and I'm willing to follow Jesus Christ wherever that takes me, it's liberation, okay? And that whole fear of, oh my gosh, they're going to come down on the church. You know what? Does that mean you're still not going to believe in Jesus Christ, even if our government is doing things, you know? Yeah. Well, it's liberation, It's not, but it's not apathy, right? Like, it's not to say, don't be involved, right? Right. It, it, because, you know, I get well, right. mm-hmm. a little rustled when I hear stuff like that because I'm like, no, but we're supposed to be involved. We're supposed to be active. But then you look at people like the saints who were the most involved in politics here and they all have the same type of like surrender to because they have that freedom where they're yeah. not concerned about the effects or the temporal right. powers or what's going to happen next. So it's it's challenging in like the best way that because I know I'm resistant to it. Yeah, uh, well, my, don't I hope nobody misunderstands that I'm not saying don't be active. We all have a call to be involved in the in the public square and to act through the lens of our faith and seek justice and and good policies and how you know how the least among us are treated all of these things, right? Of course. But it doesn't mean that you sell out the faith in order to get that person. Let me give you an example. Was that guy named Roy Jones down there in Alabama that was running for Senate in, in Alabama? And he came out and said when he was 30 years old that he was trying to date 13-year-olds. And I was like, yo, uh-uh. I don't care if homeboy is pro-life. That's a red flag, y'all. That's a red flag. People were angry with it. He's pro-life. You know, I said, aren't we a church that's just now dealing with sexual abuse of the youth? And we're going to stand up here and put this dude who at as old as he is now, is still justifying at 30 years old going after 12 and 13-year-old girls because they had their mama's permission, that something ain't right with him. And so I don't care if he's pro-life, he is not fit because of this other stuff. That's a red flag. And I'm not going to sell out. I wouldn't, you know, but because people wanted that position because they're so pro-life, they were like, you know, he, you just got to, and I was like, uh-uh, mm-mm, I'm not, I wouldn't. When you see things that are clearly objectionable, why would you put that person in a position that requires a kind of trustworthiness and virtue that he, to this point, in one very obvious area that he hasn't and doesn't see anything wrong with it? And by the way, if you don't understand that being pro-life also does touch on on areas of, of sex, you know, and this guy clearly has blown it in that area, I mean, come on, y'all. So I just was like, nah, nah, not going. Mm-mm. So that's what I mean. Like, you don't have to go out and try to make this person that had this clearly red flag background behavior into the second coming of Christ because he's pro-life. And I was like, uh-uh. I was like, well, da, da, da. I said, the, well, then the Republicans are at fault. Why did you talk to them about why did they put this guy up? You know? Whoever put this guy up, that's the best y'all had that was pro-life? Sorry. Mm-mm. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll let <laughs> listeners fill in whatever whatever other candidate that you guys, yeah, right. yeah. Oh, I hadn't thought about, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They could be thinking, of, I mean, well, um, they could be thinking of other people too. We'll let them do that. Yeah, yeah. You know, hey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do we fight this polarization that's happening in the church? Call it out. It's so, it's so unhealthy and so, you know, 
inimical to what the body of Christ is supposed to be. How I don't know. Where where's your place in that in that effort to yeah? I think talking about it and really asking people through what lens are you making your choices? Do you have this blind allegiance to a political party because they they have these values, you know? But then are you not looking at your candidates and trying to figure out are they trustworthy? You know what I mean? We don't owe blind allegiance to any of these things. And being free with that and being free to critique, you know, c- candidates and parties without thinking, oh, I'm giving up, the other side will get a, gain a point if I speak the truth. No, you, who who gains is your soul, <laughs> you know, by speaking the truth and by acting at a from position of virtue. You know, we, we have to have the spirit of detachment, I think, in terms of political parties and understanding you shouldn't feel at home in, in any of them, really, because none of them 100% meet what we think as Catholics. And I also found this sort of tribalism you know, if you aren't voting with this particular party, I mean, you've, I saw a sermon with the same priest with his lynching foolishness was trying to tell people if they vote a particular party, they are not Catholics. And I'm like, excuse me, I didn't know a political party had more power than the sacrament of baptism. That's new to me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, has anyone thought about how bad his theology is? Mm-hmm. You know? And I also thought by saying that, Without saying it, he's saying if you vote the other way, then you're really a true Catholic. And that's insidious. Yeah. And it's a lie. And also, it it diminishes our gospel witness and how we're supposed to live our lives to one singular act once a year or so to a vote. Being Catholic is so much more than that. Being pro-life is so much more than that. And I think that's another lie of the devil. Where these people think, oh, I just vote this way and I'm good. I'm cool. No, you're not. You just as hell bound as the next person. <laughs> you know, it's more than that. Yeah. Wish God, it was that if easy. If only it were one thing. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? If only, boy, what? Tell, I tell you. So if, if Jesus only knew, did he only know? Dude, you only had to vote. You didn't have to carry that cross. Yeah, man. Come on. Why did you like? <laughs> <Right>. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, but I think having these discussions, inviting people to break away from, you know, being um, so tribalistic and so sure, by the way, your salvation is not tied up with a vote. Okay, and so these just to have the the conversations and to try to push back and and invite people to look more broadly in terms of what the faith says. Yeah, Uh, and and just that that's the kind of I just think have those conversations. Well, that that's how we push back on. Well, and you're doing it on your new podcast, um, and so so psyched about it again. And and the the name of it is the Gloria Purvis Podcast, and people can find it where they're listening to this one. Um, But before we let you go, we do have one final Uh question that we ask all our guests, and it's if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be, and why? My mama. Because when I came to her at age 12 and my dad said that I was going to be a Catholic, you all have to understand, my mother was so active in the Methodist church. She played the organ. She kept the books for them. And she freely said, okay, you're going to be a Catholic. You're going to go to Mass every Sunday, every Holy Day of Obligation. Pray your rosary. You're not going to eat meat on Fridays. And that was my life from 12 years old on in a non-Catholic family. And then... You know, when people are like, where's Gloria? You know, my mom would go to church. Gloria's a Catholic now. And then all of my sisters converted. And so my mother was never bitter. My mother never stood in our way. She completely changed the life of the family to support our faith. And I believe God, oh gosh, y'all, I got such a testimony. At the end of her life, my mother's brain dead once. And through God's Oh, glory and and power and mercy. She woke up from it and the doctors couldn't understand it. So then 13 years later, as she was um, dying and I was in the hospital with her, I was praying a divine mercy chaplet in her presence as her heart was starting to stop beating. And I realized at that time when I was there alone with her in the ICU, we'd already had the priest come in, prayed to Litany to Saints, had her blessed. That's another gift from God to do that for a non-Catholic. My sisters couldn't handle it anymore, so they left the ICU. I was like, I'm going to stay with her until her heart stops. And as I was in there praying, the Divine Mercy Chaplet, and I started praying the rosary, 
I just felt God saying to me that I cannot be outdone in generosity. And, oh gosh, y'all. And I remember thinking (laughs) that she was with me when my heart started beating for the first time. And God allowed me to be with her as her heart would stop beating for the final time. And I realized that it was such a grace to be able to pray the chaplet in her presence, to have the priest to have blessed her, to have prayed the litany to saints with all her Catholic children now, you know, and that she had never, ever, ever stood in our way of practicing the faith and always, always supported us. I just felt and and believed that God took her to him for that. And I believe what was promised to us by the Divine Mercy Chaplet, the power of praying it in the presence of a dying person. And so I would canonize her. What was your mom's name? Betty. Her name was Betty. Betty. Betty Purvis. Yes. Saint Betty Purvis. Saint Betty Purvis. Purvis. I would canonize my mama. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Thank you so much. Gloria. Yeah, thank you. We're going to have to do this again sometime. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. And, uh, yeah, we need to get together soon in person and have I some drinks. I think regular crossover <laughs> episodes. Hey. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I'll be introducing the alcohol to my family. <laughs> <brain. laughs> love it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank, again, the podcast is the Gloria right. Purvis podcast. Check it out, y'all. And we will talk to you okay. soon. Thanks so much, Gloria. Thank you, guys. Bye. Here is like a broken record. Same old songs of accuracy. Play. I courage you to speak the truth. Just look at all your failures and mistakes. And if they really knew you, there's no way they could love you anyway. Oh, oh, oh but I will fight the lies with the truth. And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? Well, I have a consolation, and I've talked about this on the show before, but anytime I'm back here on campus, or it just reminds me of a time in my life when, you know, things were pretty volatile. I would say they were great. I loved it. I had the best experience in college, but, you know, I wasn't really sure where my my career was going, where my love life was going, where my vocation was going. And so things just felt a little bit, well, I don't know. Well, we'll see. And now, you know, to be back here in a different time of my life, you know, I'm here for some weddings, which are like really joy-filled occasions with people that I love. Um, But there's also the sense of like, you know, walking back here now that I'm I'm a married man and I'm, you know, in this career that I love. And I'm hesitant to say this because it sounds cheesy, but there's only a cheesy way to put this, but like, it does feel like God's like, oh, look, see, like I promised like it would be good and it would be like, things would be okay, which I generally like shy away from in my own prayer life. Anything that, that smells like you're, you know, God is a magician and like that was a predetermined path. And that of course it was, cause you know, that's not, that's not how I believe it works at all. And that's not how it works. Nevertheless, there is this recognition that, you know, God has accompanied me throughout all of this which has been the great consolation this week. It, it's, it's, I, I, I was talking to Eric about it, and it, it almost feels like nostalgia being here, but, it, but not that. Because nostalgia is like, I, I don't actually want to go back to that. It is much more like, look how good it was and how good it is, like, right. and it will be good in the future. Yeah. And so that's my consolation this week. That's great. Glad you're finally big man on campus, Zach. Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> finally. <laughs> anonymous, anonymous man on campus. But what do you got, Ashley? I have a consolation from the most unexpected of places, just Twitter. <laughs> it's kind of roundabout. Uh, yes. So I've always thought of myself as like someone who's like very good in my online presence. Like I don't fight with people. I don't make snarky comments. I basically just use Twitter to like promote America content or the occasional like cat video. <laughs> you just send me all your snarky comments. <laughs> yeah, I see. So that, I that's where this yeah. is going. Um, so, you know, I was feeling pretty good about my my online self. And then, you know, someone, I won't name names, 
Someone tweeted something the other day, just what I thought was snarky and unfair about America article. And I just like was so like not even mad, just like had this feeling of like contempt for this person. Like, ugh, they don't they don't even read us. They're opinion is stupid like blah blah and you know i did immediately send the tweet to someone else being like Ugh, look what this person is saying and and just like and i like finally like for the first time i had like the recognition of like oh you're like very high regard for your online self is like you, you know a little bit shallow because just because you're not you know tweeting mean things you're still letting online interactions like fill you with anger and contempt for other people and lead you to gossip and all of that. And so the reason this is a consolation is because, you know, I I had that recognition and was like, oh, this is something I need to work on. I think I think that I'm not like the other people on Twitter, but I actually I actually do share those ugly, ugly opinions about other people, even if I keep them into my keep them in my private channels <laughs> um, so you know they say that you know when you're on the right path god's consolation feels like you know a warm hug or whatever it is <laughs> and when you're on the wrong path it can it can be a pain of conscience um so i had one of those <laughs> a pain of conscience so. <laughs> well i hope i hope you, I'm sure you'll have a better takeaway than me, which mine typically would be like, just send a tweet anyway, just do it publicly, um, which <laughs> you have more sense to. At least I'm not a hypocrite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, get us out of here. All right. Judge Whitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Judge Whitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Judge Whitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Judge Whitical is a production of America Media and New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.